But if Muir and Emerson, and before them, 18th century Irish philosopher Edmund Burke had it right, feelings of spirituality don't just spring from religion. They also spring from transcendent experiences in nature. In 1757, the 28-year-old Burke landed in the center of the Enlightenment when he published a philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. A secularist, he had been rambling around Ireland and feeling, for lack of a better word, moved. Sensitive and dramatic, he was less interested in landscapes that were picturesque than in scenes that were a little bit dark. Haunting was good, terrifying was even better. The passion caused by the great and sublime nature, he wrote, when those causes operate most powerfully, is astonishment. And astonishment is the state of the soul in which all motions are suspended with some degree of horror. He loved a torrential waterfall, a violent storm, a dark grove. He would have made a good raft guide. According to Burke, for something to be truly awe-inspiring, it must possess a vastness of extent as well as a degree of difficulty in our ability to make sense of it. That awe also inspires feelings of humility and a more outward perspective has been well described by philosophers, priests, and poets. Until Burke, awe was considered the purview and foundational emotion of religious experience. The word awe derives from Old English and Norse words for the fear and dread one felt before a divine being. It isn't for nothing that many churches play up the music, the visions, the robes, and architectural heights and spans. These elements fill us with wonder, humility, and a bit of trepidation. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, April 4th, and today, in the midst of a western super bloom, and as spring opens to us, it's time for a nature fix. And our guide today will be Florence Williams, who we met on this program back in 2013 for episode number 107. Williams is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for the New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, Slate, Mother Jones, High Country News, O.W. Bicycling, and numerous other publications. She is also the writer and host of a new Audible original series entitled Breasts Unbound. Her first book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, Norton 2012, received the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Science and Technology and the 2013 Audi in General Nonfiction. It was also named a notable book of 2012 by the New York Times. She serves on the board of her favorite nonprofit, High Country News, and lives with her family in Washington, D.C. Her newest work, published earlier this year by Norton, The Nature Fix, sets out to uncover the science behind nature's positive effects on the brain. In this informative and entertaining account, Williams investigates cutting-edge research as she travels to fragrant cypress forests in Korea to meet the rangers who administer forest healing programs to the green hills of Scotland and its eco-therapeutic approach to caring for mentally ill, to a river trip in Idaho with Iraqi vets suffering from PTSD, to the West Virginia mountains where she discovers how being outside helps children with ADHD. The Nature Fix demonstrates that our connection to nature is much more important to our cognition than we think, and that even small amounts of exposure to the living world can improve our creativity and enhance our mood. 
In prose that is incisive, witty, and urgent, William shows how time and nature is not a luxury, but in fact essential to our humanity. As our modern lives shift dramatically indoors, these ideas and the answers they yield are even more urgent than ever. It's an honor to have Florence back. How are you doing today? Hey, Doug, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, and it feels like we're kind of in the midst of a nature moment to me. Is that because it's spring? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and because this winter was so long, and also it seems like in the West there was a lot of uh, moisture, a lot of snow. And so um, this past weekend my family went to Shoshone Falls, which is in Idaho, and it's funny because it was – it. everyone's doing it. It's just our local scenic attraction, but because there's so much water on the Snake River right now, it really is awe-inspiring. I bet. I bet. It was probably thumping along. Yes. Um, of course, <laughs> at the same time, there's all this awe. Then you also have like uh, people competing in the Darwin Awards where they're you know, trying to <laughs> <laughs> crawling around on cliffs and stuff to get the right photo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just one more step back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The curious thing to me... Um, for a nature writer is in terms of practice and the idea of how you write a book and whether or not it is something because oftentimes your life over a period of time becomes the work itself and I wonder if you have an idea of what you're doing before you do it or if it just <laughs> halfway through the book you realize oh my gosh this is the book that I'm writing that's so funny I sometimes I feel like I never have any idea what I'm doing <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is I, I don't really consider myself a nature writer. Um, so it's, it's interesting that, you know, that's how it uh, strikes you. But I, I really come at this from, I guess, more of a science writing perspective. Okay, um, sure. So I'm, I'm just interested in, you know, how our bodies work <laughs> and how our cells work. I'm interested in how the environment interacts, you know, with human behavior and human health. So my first book, you know, as you mentioned, was um, about breasts and breast health, um, but it was really still a, an environmental health book. I mean, it was really sort of about how modern life, you know, has changed our bodies in some ways, you know, as seen through, you know, this one organ. And um, this book is also an environmental health book because, uh, and it grew, it did, as you mentioned, I mean, it grew out of my own life, my own life story. And I do tend to write often in the first person. Um, and what happened with me is I moved from the Rocky Mountain West, where I had lived for you know over two decades in these kind of idyllic mountain towns, um, to Washington D.C. <laughs> for my husband's job. And um, and boy, did I feel that change, you know, in my brain and in my body. I mean, I felt like this kind of stress bomb, you know, had gone off in my head. And I, it just really made me think about um, what I had lost in terms of my kind of, you know, daily, almost hourly connection to nature. Uh, and, and then sort of what the science really had to say about that. Well, I'm curious about D.C. I mean, you describe living under a, a flight path, basically. And is, is it really, <laughs> really that bad? <laughs> you know, it's it's really not that bad. I mean, I've I've gotten used to it now. I think part of my, you know, part of my troubles, you know, were that uh it was just a really big shift, you know, sort of every every way. But um 
Yeah, I mean, the environment here is dramatically different. So I never knew that I was sensitive to noise pollution <laughs> or that I was sensitive to noise. But it turns out, I guess, that I am because we did move to this neighborhood that's pretty close to you know Reagan National Airport. Uh, it's a pretty neighborhood. It has nice trees. It has nice parks. Uh, it's very close to the CNO Canal uh, and the Potomac River. But that's also the corridor <laughs> you know, for these jumbo jets flying into in and out of Reagan. And, and, and I mean, it, it's really pretty extreme because these jets fly in, you know, once every minute, two minutes at pretty high decibel levels. And I was just like, oh, my God, what is going on here? <laughs> this feels like living in a DMZ or something. I When I moved to Seattle, I experienced something similar where it was kind of unbelievable how often the planes would fly overhead because – Seattle's kind of on the flight path to SeaTac. But of course, then you're right in the midst of city noise. And so they're competing with all like the I-5 corridor too that runs right through the middle of the city. Yeah. But in respect to some of your findings, the other interesting thing was there's something really natural about Seattle that made, you know, so you were saying that people on the coast tend to be happier yeah, that's something, of course, the um, uh, I would say particularly the British researchers have honed in on because it's an island nation there and um, surrounded by water. The Brits just go crazy for their coasts. And um, yeah, so so a, a number of studies are sort of underway or have been underway showing kind of where people feel happiest. Um, and it's not something that people really tend to be consciously aware of, which I thought was really interesting, too. Um, you know, some of us know we like the coast and we move there, but others of us, you know, we just happen to find ourselves in particular kinds of neighborhoods. Uh, and researchers have correlated that those positions on the map, you know, their proximity to things like green space or, you know, blue space, coastal zones, um, with things like lifespan, you know, longevity, stress-related disease, learning outcomes, birth outcomes, um, you know, symptoms of violence and aggression and crime statistics. I mean, there's sort of this amazing wealth of knowledge now, sort of large-scale epidemiological evidence really suggesting that our proximity to green space makes us happier and healthier and, and calmer. Hmm. And with respect to that, too, you also uh, – is it Finland where they have the right to wander laws? Yes. I mean, many, many countries in Europe do, um, you know, and they stem from these kind of, you know, old, old rooted land traditions. You can walk across anyone's private property. Uh, Finland and um, actually Scotland have particularly sort of lenient versions of these laws. Uh, where you can camp actually on other people's land, <laughs> you can hike on them, you can pick berries on them, um, you just can't light fires or kill animals, basically take game. So yeah, so so the world is sort of your oyster. You know, if you're just like a regular person and, and not an aristocrat, you can still you know kind of have this wonderful um, you know kind of almost ownership you know of all the lands in this country. You can just tromp across any place. And go for a hike. You could, you know, the, the the horizon is kind of limitless. And I think because of that, um, you know, the access to nature has really permeated all classes of society. Whereas I think in you know in the United States, we still tend to think, and and it seems to be true, that you know access to the kind of highest quality, um, you know, countryside is is still really 
enjoyed by people who, who can afford it, you know, by the kids who can go to nice summer camps or the people who can live on the golf course, um, you know, or on the lakeside. And it's all like private property, private property. But then, of course, you know, we compensate for that by having these great public lands, too, and public parks and wildernesses. So I talk a lot about, about that. The problem is we can't always, you know, get to them. Yeah. Well, so the interesting notion about that was that it kind of turns our idea of freedom inside out, where in Scotland and Finland, they think because, I mean, it's it's the idea that everything is available that makes them free. And in this country, it's almost like because we have ownership of things, that's why things, why we feel this idea of freedom. But yeah. Yeah. And the, but then the, the interesting idea to me is this uh, idea of um, taking and privatizing public lands, which, you know, in some respects sounds like, oh, this is the right move uh, for freedom. But then at the same time, do we lose those public lands and then uh, have less access to green spaces? Well, I think you really hit something on the head. I mean, how we define freedom you know, I think, uh, you know, is really different depending on which side of the political divide you're on. Um, certainly the freedom to to roam, <laughs> and, and that's literally what the word means in, in Finland. There's a, there's a word for the freedom to roam, uh, you know, is a fundamental, is a fundamental freedom. Um, and, you know, if we just privatize everything, you just make it very exclusive. You make that land exclusive uh, to a few. And sure, maybe anyone can kind of, you know, theoretically climb the social ladder and buy the land. But, you know, in reality, it doesn't work that way. And you, you just end up cutting off access, you know, for, for the majority of, of people who, who might otherwise actually make, you know, their nation and democracy stronger, as, as the evidence shows, by sort of having access to nature and by being their best citizen selves. Yeah, there's actually a case like that here in Idaho, and I, I'm not versed enough in the particulars, but but that's the gist is these East Coast rich guys came and bought a bunch of public, well, I don't know if it, it they privatized a bunch of land, and a lot of right-wingers were really excited about this move, and then they closed it off to hunting and snowmobiling and everything, and then they're all like, oh my gosh, what, what what's going on? We don't have access to our hunting grounds anymore. But from a from an environmental standpoint now, you know, from a pristine, the lands will become more natural, maybe? Well, not if not if you log them or clear cut them, you know, which you can do if it's yeah. your own private land. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a really risky move. And, and especially, you know, some of the states now want to own these federal lands. But in order to manage them and to pay for the management, they're going to have to exploit the resources on them. So, so you do potentially put the nature in them, I think, at grave risk in those kinds of transactions. But speaking about uh, nature in Idaho, one of the I think one of my favorite chapters in your book was when you went into the Frank Church Wilderness, the River of No Return. And that's also like when I think of awe, when you're standing in Stanley looking at the sawtooths, that, that is um, amazing. Could you talk a little bit about your trip down the Salmon River? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was, the Salmon River flows through the largest wilderness area in the lower 48, as you mentioned, the Frank Church River of No Return in the middle of Idaho. Um, 
And and I, it's a great example of this, you know, incredible legacy, incredible and unique legacy that America has you know, with wild spaces and wilderness areas. You know, not very many places on earth, um, you know, have these kinds of, of, you know, relatively untrammeled places where anyone can go. And um, it's not a perfectly pristine landscape. And, and that was part of, I think, what was so moving about being there with traumatized veterans. Um, they saw metaphors in this kind of heavily scarred landscape, uh, you know, that they could really relate to. And in the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, through the salmon, it's seen a number of wildfires. So that those are the scars that you see. You see, uh, you know, burn after burn. But what's interesting is that, uh, you know, the land regenerates after a burn. And you see, you know, 8, 10, 15, 20 years later, you know, these incredible sort of understories growing up with new greenery, new vegetation, um, and still with the kind of scarred, um, charred, <laughs> blackened stalks, you know, of some of the trees. And, and of course, some of the trees survive these kinds of scars too, which is amazing. So I was on a raft with a woman um, who had suffered sort of terrible trauma, uh, while she served in the military, and she was she had been very depressed, uh, anxious. You know, post traumatic stress. There are a number of symptoms that are pretty well documented now um, in terms of depression, anxiety. You know, trouble sleeping, trouble being comfortable in social situations or social environments. Um, feeling very cut off, I think, from from a lot that's going on in the world. And yet, when you're in the wilderness, you really open up to the environment because it almost forces your engagement. You know, you're flowing through these dramatic, beautiful landscapes. You know, great blue herons are flying by, falcons are diving for fish. You're sitting in a boat that's going through a rapid. Um, you're forced to sort of pay attention and it, it draws you out of those cycles of, you know, bad memories and, and you also sleep better. But anyway, we were going through this forest and this woman said to me, wow, you know, it's so powerful for me to see these trees regenerate and this forest regenerates and nature provides an example of how to do this. You know, it just keeps moving forward. And, and uh, so I thought that was very powerful, both for, for me to witness, but, but also for these women um, who I think found some comfort and some hope in that, in that natural landscape. And then in terms of like the actual it, it's not a gentle little trip either though, the actual rapids themselves, you go through parts that are uh, calm and and then other parts where people are being thrown from the boat actually <laughs> yeah I was kind of worried <laughs> I was worried about some of these women um, yeah I mean they you know they were battle scarred themselves um, you know a couple of them had traumatic brain injuries um, one woman who I really write quite a lot about in the chapter a woman named Tanya she had lost use of one of her arms and partial use of one of her legs. And yet here she was, uh, you know, in a little inflatable kayak by herself with a paddle that they sort of taped to her hand. And so she was able to kind of steer this boat with her one working hand and going through these pretty big rapids. <laughs> and um, I thought, gosh, you know, I was worried about her. Like, what's going to happen if she falls out? But um that's one thing about the wilderness, too, is that people look out for each other. And, you know, these boats were turning over and people were rescuing each other. They were pulling each other into each other's boats, you know, giving each other hugs when they survived the rapid. Um, and the women felt so empowered by that, you know, empowered by, A, you know, getting through this, you know, somewhat um, treacherous landscape. 
but also really empowered by the social connections and the bonds that they formed. And these were lasting connections. I mean, the women are still in touch. They're still friends. And they started out, you know, not that way. I mean, it was kind of like a tense, you know, beginning to the trip where everyone was kind of grumpy <laughs> and tired and, you know, on, on a lot of medication. And, you know, they hadn't left their houses in a long time. And here they were, you know, doing this kind of brave thing. But by the end, you know, they, they were a working unit, you know, and, and that harkens back to what's great, I think, about the military in that, you know, it is a collective endeavor where people look out for each other um, and they have a mission and they have a goal. Uh, and, and so it, it brought back sort of the good parts of that. Um, and, and I think these women, it, it really helped them recover. What You write a lot about sound also and how in terms of uh, what's natural or our idea of natural, um, one of the pollutants that uh, we suffer from is uh, urban sound say but what was what was the sound like were you getting overflights in in the wilderness area very few um and and they were very far away <laughs> because there are there isn't a lot of air traffic right you know right in idaho so these were flights that were going from like maybe california to new york or whatever so yeah you would see contrails you would you would hear sort of jets from far away but there were few and far between and there were so many other wonderful sounds that were catching our attention. So, you know, like I, I mentioned, the, the water, the, the birds flying in and um, diving into the waves, um, the sound of the wind <laughs> it was pretty dramatic, kind of whipping through these sometimes dead trees, as I mentioned. Um, you know, the sound of rain, uh, these sounds that I think a bird song, you know, that that our ancestral brains are comfortable hearing because they know how to process these sounds. One, one psychologist I talked to said, you know, the, the great thing about birdsong, one of the reasons it probably puts us at ease is that when we woke up in the morning, you know, in our, on the veldt or in the forest, you know, in the past, when, when, when birds were chirping, you knew sort of all was right in the world. It was a very comforting sound. Uh, and our brains have kind of learned to still interpret it that way. Huh. One of the other uh, woods, wilderness areas you visited with the Muir Woods, and I think I might have this wrong, but that there was a move to make it a quiet space. Yeah, that's right. The Muir Woods in California, um, it's a National Park Service unit. It's incredibly popular, pretty close to San Francisco. Um, you know, thousands and thousands of tourists are there at any given moment. People are on their cell phones. You know, kids are running around screaming. And um some some psychologists did a survey and they said, you know, what do you like about the woods? And they were really surprised that people used psychological terms like peace, comfort, um, happiness, which I think they weren't expecting. And then when they they asked, well, what are the elements that that you know make you feel this way? Um, a lot of people mentioned birdsong, and so. The psychologists who were working for the National Park Service um, came up with a recommendation to create a quiet zone, sort of like a quiet car on the Amtrak <laughs> for listeners who have been on the East Coast and done that. Um, you know, it's just a zone where people could kind of feel that reverence of silence in nature um, or the sounds of nature as opposed to sort of the sounds of um, human endeavor. And um, it's been very powerful and effective. And I think people people love going there. That was really interesting for me to read about because there's uh, somewhere in Utah they have the like it's a 
dark skies natural national park and so the idea that there is a quiet you know so like it it feels like this is this strange contradiction our technology allows us to live in a city and then you know spend 40 minutes and drive someplace you know that's natural but at the same time you know it's that technology that's kind of made our our normal spaces less natural or less uh, enlivening I suppose from that standpoint yeah I think the technology has given us access you know and information um, and at the same time it's also created a lot of the the noise pollution I think that um, you know you know one thing I hope that we'll see is technology being used to make quieter um, cars, quieter airplanes. We're seeing some of that happening. Airplanes are actually a lot quieter than they were 30 years ago. Of course, there are, you know, like 10 times more of them. Um, there's a hel- two helicopters right outside my window right now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably um, Donald Trump on his way to the CIA. Um, so the thing about sound that I think is really important to mention, and, and the National Park Service has has documented this, is that there are so few places left in America where you don't hear human sounds. So something like 85% of the landscapes in the lower 48, you can hear a road. Um, and similar similar percentage, you can hear planes. Um, there are very few places that are actually quiet of, of the what they call the um, anthrophony um, or human-made noises. So it's a resource that's actually becoming more scarce all the time. And, and the same is true with dark skies. Very few places where you can really still see the Milky Way. In fact, I was I was on a camping trip with some Girl Scouts a couple of months ago, um, mostly from the Denver suburbs. And we were camping in the mountains. And these girls said, you know, I, I've never seen the Milky Way. I've never seen a shooting star. Uh, you know, the, the, the environments where they lived um, didn't allow them to see that. It was quite amazing. You mentioned Donald Trump. And so it's funny, everyone's giving him a hard time about how often he goes golfing. <laughs> but at the same time, from from the point of view of, you know, what is what kind of rehabilitative things do you can you utilize to uh, chill you out? It seems like in a really man-made sort of way golfing does it, it is that the nature fix for a lot of people well it is you know the golf course it's interesting really mimics um in some ways you know the savannah <laughs> where we evolved it's got both um prospect you know sort of where you can see a long distance and it's also got refuge because a lot of golf courses are really rimmed by you know trees so it has this combination of tree and meadow or forest and meadow um, that people do find very comforting I think it's one of the reasons why golf is is as popular as it is and why people really like to live on golf courses so I actually wish Donald Trump golfed all day <laughs> and I have I have this other plan which is that I think we need to start a campaign to deliver potted plants to Congress <laughs> because there is a lot of we, there's actually a lot of data and research showing that um, even houseplants and the existence of plants um, can make us behave more generously um, to each other and to get along better uh, and act more charitably. So I feel like Congress needs a big ficus campaign going right now. Now, do you think, did you find that people respond to plastic plants the same or is it actually um, that they show a, a more increased uh, generosity around real living plants. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm not sure. Of, I'm not aware of studies that have substituted plastic plants for real plants, but there are studies showing that pictures and videos of nature can actually yield benefits. So, for example, there's a prison. I think it's in Idaho, actually, out your direction, um, where the solitary confinement prisoners are exercising in one of two rooms and one is playing nature videos and the other room is not. And the inmates who are exercising in the nature video room actually are um, showing fewer incidents of violence. They're having sort of fewer write-ups by their guards. They're getting into fewer confrontations and experiencing sort of more calm. And at first the guards were sort of resistant to showing these hardened criminals, you know, pretty videos. But but now the guards are all for it because it actually makes their jobs easier when the, when the inmates are calm. So, you know, I, I think there is this kind of gradation of, you know, virtual nature <laughs> um, to real nature. It's sort of a dose curve, um, you know, and obviously I think being, being in, you know, a fully sensory immersive kind of environment would have better effects, but, but even a, a picture or video can, can do something. That's interesting because that's one of those things that you explored a little bit where with with immersive virtual realities and you, you talk – I've read about this where people are so into their video game that you know they have a moment where they look up at the moon and they have this transcendent moment you know in their virtual space they, and they, they realize, oh, I'm, I'm not really here. I'm in a, in a virtual game and I'm just pretending to be this hero of the game. But that, it's strange because do you think people will be able to get a nature fix in that space? Or do, what did you Gosh, find? Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. You know, once virtual reality becomes as good as nature, then, you know, what incentive will there be to ever go outside <laughs> or to ever conserve it? So, uh, you know, that's the threat. On the other hand, there are people who really can't go outside, you know, very well. I mean, people who are really sick or people who are astronauts in space, for example. You know, these are people who still do, their brains still kind of need their nature fix. And so, so virtual reality can, you know, help some people who just don't have the access. But I think a better solution uh, again, is to sort of uh, encourage a full sensory experience because virtual reality still hasn't really, it hasn't really figured out, you know, the breeze on on the cheek, you know, or your hair flying in the wind, um, or that like you know sort of complex set of fragrances that you get, you know, from really being in a forest. And the science shows that when all of those senses are engaged, um, there's a more powerful effect in terms of lowering our blood pressure, um, uh, you know, creating a, a sense of vitality, uh, an increase in mood. These are things that um, seem to be most effective when all of the senses are, are put into use. And you even mentioned that for people who are recovering, there are studies that show people with windows in their room and then the window has a view of a tree, they actually recover faster. There's a whole set of window studies, <laughs> so-called window studies. Um, I think one of the most influential early ones was in the early 80s um, by psychologist uh, Richard Ulrich. And he looked at hospital records, uh, you know, people who had already been in and out of hospitals. So it was kind of a ready-made experiment. Uh, he knew which side of the hospital they had roomed in. And in these, by the way, they were all patients who had had gallbladder surgery. So they all had the same surgery. Some of these patients were assigned to rooms with um, 
uh, a great view of a tree out the window or trees. Um, other patients were assigned to rooms with a view of a brick wall. And he just looked at the hospital records, you know, from a number of these patients over the years. And, and what he found was that the patients who'd been in the rooms with the tree views had shorter recovery times, requested less pain medication, and their nurses reported sort of better attitudes <laughs> in the patients. So that that was very, very, um, I think, seminal for um, hospital design. And you now see more hospitals, you know, sort of incorporating, um, for example, gardens or garden courtyards, um, landscaping. They're starting to take this kind of stuff a little more seriously now. Uh, and, and of course, if you if you go back to, you know, the 1840s and 50s, Florence Nightingale was writing about this, you know, 100, 150 years ago. Um, and, and now we're only sort of just coming back around to saying, oh, yeah, actually, patients really do like a nice view and it helps them. Hmm. Well, recently, your book was featured in The Atlantic uh, as a way to talk about this other book that just came out, The Stranger in the Woods. Have you have you read that one? So I read the article um, that started that book uh, about the hermit in Maine. Huh. Absolutely fascinating piece. I am familiar. I am familiar with it. Um, this was a. It was a hermit who retreated to the Maine woods. I think for something like twenty four years. Yeah. Uh, and and he had to steal food in order to survive. You know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't really an idyllic existence. I think. Well, I think the people that read the book are. It's funny because it's it's getting split reviews where. He didn't re return to because this is one of those interesting things that pops up every now and again that there are folks that think we need to go back to uh, like a more hunter gatherer type way of life and that that would be the thing that resets everything and that you know we would find peace finally if we could just return to like hunter gatherer bands. <laughs> right, it's like that that whole sort of um, paleo romance going on. <laughs> Paleo is having a moment, right? Yeah, there's a there's a book that everyone loves, uh, Ishmael, I think, by Daniel Quinn, where there's something about just what where we've evolved to with our technology that is the thing that unsettles us, and that if we could just go back to this this idyllic time, then everything would be good again. <laughs> Right, right. We're, we're, we have, I think, very much romanticized <laughs> hunter-gatherer life. Uh, you know, those were not easy times. Right? I mean, <laughs> ch child mortality rates alone, uh, I think, uh, you know, created just huge amounts of, of stress and trauma and grief. Um, I think one out of every two, two kids really didn't make it, you know, in hunter-gatherer cultures. And the hermit would eat Kit Kats and watch TV. And so. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think that the problem with also romanticizing this retreat to nature is that, you know, we have to remember that another element that humans really need for sort of optimizing health and happiness are other people. Yeah. Right. So so we are social animals. And, you know, the hermit, unfortunately, um, I mean, I think he had mental health issues. You know, he had his reasons for retreating away from society. But to hold that up as an ideal, I think, would be really misguided. I mean, one of the one of the wonderful things about nature exposure is that it actually facilitates social bonds. You know, groups of people, families. I know my kids when we're when we're out on a river. I mean, they they really get along better than in almost any other kind of situation. Um, it, it can really strengthen human bonds. And so, so nature in some ways 
really facilitates other things that we know are good for us, you know, like exercise, like fresh air, like other people. Yeah, there was a point in time where I was looking at like the Verizon coverage map and you look at the places that are dark on the map and you're like, well, those are the special places because you can go and and you're actually out of reach. Interesting. You know, so that there's something magical about not having to be on the hook, as it were. But one of the interesting things, uh, one of the, probably the most interesting thing that I found in your book is this idea of fractals that you talked about um, in that Jackson Pollock was actually painting fractals, that there was something, there's something systematic going on that mimicked nature in his work. I was so fascinated by that too. Um, there's a researcher at the at Oregon, University of Oregon, um, Richard Taylor, who found, uh, he, he's a, both a physicist and someone who was really interested in um, modern painting, modern art. And he found that a lot of Jackson Pollock's, or, or most of them, had this kind of, have this sort of natural fractal pattern built into them, a sort of fractal dimension. And, and what fractal really means is just a pattern that sort of repeats at scale. Um, and, and a lot of fractals are found in the natural world, for example, in tree trunks and, and you know, trees, in ocean waves and cloud formations, grasses. Uh, and, and somehow Jackson Pollock you know, sort of intuitively put fractals into his into his art, but at a higher dimension. I mean, his, his paintings are, you know, they're they're more sort of chaotic in their fractal patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're just busier. Um, which kind of stimulated his mind. But the same researcher, Richard Taylor, has found that when the human brain looks at fractals, uh, it really responds to them. It becomes, you know, almost hypnotized by the fractal patterns. And it, our brains put out more alpha waves, uh, which is sort of, you know, that's kind of the Zen, um, the Zen wave state. <laughs> that's sort of a holy grail of, of alpha, of, of brain waves that make us sort of calm, both calm and alert at the same time. Um, it's not a wave pattern that we often find in our everyday, you know, parking spot chasing <laughs> to do email task list, you know, checking off brains. But but it is something we find sometimes when we're when we're looking at clouds. And it may be one of the reasons we like to kind of zone out and do that and give our brains a little break. Where when are some other times that we can achieve alpha waves? Well, I, I asked that question <laughs> and I actually, uh, I borrowed a portable EEG brainwave measuring cap. <laughs> it looks like a bathing cap. And I was walking around DC wearing this cap, I think looking like a crazy person trying to find where I could get alpha waves. And I, I couldn't get them in my city parks, probably because of all the noise pollution, but I could get them on a quiet lake in Maine. So, and, and that's, that is kind of my happy place. I think when I'm out, you know, on water or near water, which is good to know, I don't really need an EEG cap to tell me I feel good out in that space, but, but it was neat to have it validated (laughs) by the, by the software. (laughs) And so something that's really fascinating to me about that is that oftentimes these religious orders, and that kind of links back to the, the beginning little bit that I read was that we often associate awe with religion, but religious orders kind of were 
a component was the natural world and i think it like the monks all kinds of monks have this nature even the convent in cottonwood idaho has you know all kinds of nature that they had to you know like uh i'm trying to think like gardens and stuff they're doing jams and you know so they're definitely nature is a component of their their practice mm, interesting yeah well the studies show that um 75 percent of the time that people experience awe uh it's actually in the natural world so, I mean, once upon a time when we spent more time in church, I guess we experienced it more there or in temple. But um, but now, you know, most of us find awe in nature. And it doesn't have to be super dramatic. It can be a sunset, you know, or a butterfly, you know, landing on a petal next to you. Um, we can have these kind of small, graceful moments of awe that, that really do seem to lift our moods, at least for a little while, and, and also make us feel, interestingly, more connected to each other. When we experience awe, it takes us out of our own heads um, and makes us feel more bonded um, as as uh, as a society. And so <laughs> you don't know what you're doing, you said, but where are you being pulled now? What do you think you're going to be writing about next? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I, you know, I'm still really passionate about this this field, I'm especially passionate. We didn't talk about kids, but I'm really passionate about getting kids outside into nature um, and making it accessible for everyone because I do think that nature is a necessity and not just a luxury. So I expect I'll still be writing about this um, for quite a while to come. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Bet. You've been listening to Florence Williams on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio on the SyncBook.com. For more information about her work, visit her website, florencewilliams.com. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, check out past shows, or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Sync Book Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and go outside, often, sometimes in wild places. Bring friends, or not, breathe. I was a seagull, you were an eagle. We were together once in a while. You like the mountains, I love the ocean. I need the motion, you need the trees. When we're together, birds of a feather I make you lazy, you keep me shy There's no escaping, love that's forsaken Why must we fake them when we from the start? You pull me closer, you drew me closer I lay my worries in your
Yeah.